0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This episode of The Projection Booth is brought to you by Ovid.tv. Ovid.tv is the independent streaming home for people who want to watch foreign films, thought-provoking documentaries, and art house gems that are impossible to find anywhere else. For just $6.99 a month, you'll have access to a cornucopia of films to watch anytime and on any device. Vanity Fair calls Ovid.TV a fantastic streamer for people with a taste for foreign, political, and otherwise beyond the American mainstream films. Discover art house titles, documentaries, works of global cinema all in one place. Start streaming at www.ovid.tv. Highlights include the documentary Let the Fire Burn. It's a shocking true story of the escalating confrontations between the Philadelphia police and the Back to Nature Black Collective. The conflict culminated in 1985 with the death of 11 MOVE members, six of them children, and the destruction of an entire black working-class neighborhood when police bombed the group's fortified house. You'll notice echoes between the film and today's clashes between citizens and the police. From now until October 21st, 2020, save 50% off your first three months of TV. Just head on over to www. OVID.TV and sign up with the coupon code Projection at checkout.
2: What number are we thinking of? Sixty nine, Dudes. nineteen sixty nine, okay. Walk across the USA. It's another year for me and you, another year with nothing to do, it's another year for me and you, another year with nothing to do.
1: Welcome to the Projection Booth, I'm your host Mike White, joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello! Also back in the booth is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. We continue Czech Timber with a film that really makes the word Czech Timber a misnomer. We are discussing the Slovakian film Birds, Orphans, and Fools by Euro Jakubisko. I've spoken a little bit in the past about the difference between Bohemia, Moravia, and Slovakia, especially on our episode about the joke, but we will be discussing that a bit more as we talk about Jakubisko and his relationship with his fellow FAMU filmmakers. Birds, Orphans, and Fools is a wild ride. It's the story of three young people in the turbulent year and place of 1968 Slovakia. There are birds, the characters are orphans, and they often play the fool as we experience a slice of their lives. This is either going to be one of those episodes that helps explain things and is good to hear before watching the movie, or it might just devolve into something that will confuse you to the point of madness. You have been warned. So, Jonathan, when was the first time you saw Birds, Orphans, and Fools, and what did you think?
0: I first saw it in 2003, and I think I just started researching Czechoslovak Cinema around this time, and... I'd read a little bit about it and I'd seen stills of it in a couple of textbooks, including um, Amos Vogel's amazing book, uh, Film as a Subversive Art. So I think I'd seen a still in that and I was really excited by it because it just looked so wild. And it was the first time that I'd really heard about Slovak cinema as opposed to Czech cinema. So Slovak cinema was still a bit of a mystery and I just got this impression of complete kind of visual craziness. And when I did get to see the film, I think it was one of those rare times that it really did live up to what I was imagining. And uh, so, yes, it was really my first taste of Slovak film. And it was pretty much, I think, what I had hoped for, although I was really shocked at the time by the ending. And I think every time I watch it again, I'm always shocked by that ending. How about you, Kat?
1: I have
3: Jonathan here to thank for this one, actually. This was a recommendation that came through Jonathan about, I think, maybe five years ago now, which seems crazy. I was researching this chapter for a book on folk horror, on Czechoslovakian folk horror. Um, And although this isn't a folk horror, Jonathan gave me some help with the chapter, especially that wonderful Bathory cartoon, uh, which I was able to add in. But we just started, I think, talking about the pagan elements in in Czech and Slovak film. And this was one of the recommendations. So I picked up the second run DVD of it. And like Jonathan, it was really one of those times where it met my expectations or even exceeded them. I love any sense of paganism in film. And this is just such a pagan film. It's so... Vivid and the colours in it, and just everything, so I was just blown away by it, obviously also really shocked by that end. Well, I've seen it a few times since then, because I absolutely love it. It's probably one of my favourite Czechoslovakian films, but watching it back for this again, just that ending, it just it still it never loses its power to just shock, and it's just so sad as well, and the music and everything. Even now, it's a film I watch with my mouth open because I'm just like, oh, like literally every frame is just
1: gorgeous. Kind of like you, Jonathan. I first ran across this in that Vogel book, and a lot of Yakubisko's films were just impossible to find. The ones that he made just prior to this, and the ones that he made just after this were just so difficult. Uh When I did find them on VHS bootlegs, they wouldn't have subtitles, and it's not like you can really watch his movies without subtitles, because there is so much stuff going on. This movie just floored me when I watched it for the podcast, and just seeing the colors, the editing style, the way that this is put together, it's so anarchic, but there's a logic to it. And I feel like I would have to watch this I don't know how many more times before I could even start to glean some of the symbolism that's going on in this film. I mean, the use of the flag, the use of the colors of the flag so often, it's just, it's wild. I mean, just having to look up who Stefanik is, uh, looking up where they're at at one crucial point um, in front of a big memorial, I guess it is. It's just so many things happening in this, and so I'm really excited to talk to you guys and try to figure this one
0: out a little bit more. He is a really uh, visually impressive. And I think for me, this is, I think his best film, I would say, in my opinion. And I think it's the film where he most fully realized his aesthetic. And I think that he said at the time or just before this was made, I think that he was worried that he would never really be able to make a normal film, that he just didn't know how to make a normal film. But for me, I think that, This is the film where he really, I think, shows what he is about. I think it's worth noting that he trained as a graphic designer, I think, before he trained as a filmmaker. And then he actually originally, I think, was interested in cinematography. I think he originally wanted to be a cinematographer. But the story goes that he was not accepted at FAMU as a cinematographer and only on the directing course so he kind of became a director by default but i think that says a lot about where he's coming from as a filmmaker in the i think the visual side is really crucial he does approach filmmaking as a a painter really or as a visual artist and as you say i think every frame is just so full of images so full of motifs and the way that he uses color i think is really striking I think it can make the film or I think a lot of his films almost like over rich. I think there can almost be too much going on. And I think we can feel overwhelmed sometimes and worry that we're not getting a lot of the references or a lot of the the meanings behind things. And I think a lot of it does have a meaning that you can attach to it. I think in other cases, I think a lot of it is very intuitive and I think a lot of it's very playful as well. One of the things that struck me when I first saw it was, and this sort of matched what I'd read about him, was that I think this represents really a Slovak aesthetic. I think it represents something different from what a lot of the Czech filmmakers were doing. So I think Jakubisko, I think he's one of the three filmmakers in Slovakia who really represents uh, what could be seen as as a distinct Slovak style. The kind of chief element of that is this combination of the influence of folk art with kind of avant-garde or modernist elements and uh, when you think of like the use of colour and the way the kind of colour will change I mean I think this really matches that very vivid use of colour that you see like in Slovak folk art or East European folk art in general. The interesting thing and I think this is maybe something that makes him almost comparable to somebody like Glauber Rocha in Brazil, like in a very different context, in that sometimes it's hard to know where the kind of folk artist ends and the avant gardeist begins, because I think some of the techniques or devices, I mean, we could see them as avant garde, but I think in a way they also relate back to a folk tradition of very kind of vivid colour, vivid imagery, and so on.
3: Jonathan, because I was going to, because you're obviously the expert on Slovakian film, and it often gets pushed. And I know I've been guilty of this. the sort of Czechoslovakian or the Prague stuff. Really takes prominence and probably it's a lot easier to get a hold of as well. Like Mike said, there's issues with finding some of the films. But one thing that really interests me about the director in the interview that Mike sent over, closely watched films by Antonin J. Leem. The fact that he he didn't necessarily see himself as as Slovakian and was really into this idea of this sort of multicultural mixing pot and an embracing of all the different cultures. Whereas you have someone like Juri Hertz, who was also Slovak, but always felt like an outsider to FAMU because of that and like the new wave. Always felt like the outsider and a bit pushed out. Whereas Yakubisko seems to have added like the complete opposite. He seems to have just been totally into not just drawing from this like folk art, but this whole mixing part of energy. And, you know, the people he was working with as well, people like Hitilova, for example. And, you know, it just really struck me the contrast between their attitudes.
0: That is one of the ironic things about Jakobisko as a filmmaker uh, in that, as you say, I think he did feel that he was really part of that third generation of Slovaks who did not really feel any antagonism towards the Czechs and who felt that these ethnic or these cultural differences were not really important. It's worth noting, too, that uh, Jakobisko, uh, like a couple of his fellow Slovak filmmakers from that same generation, were Farmu graduates, and so I think that possibly is one of the reasons why maybe he didn't feel that sense of distance or difference from the New Wave. Uh, in contrast with with Hurt, we still can justify this film as a Czech Timber uh, entry because. Even, I think, in the production of the film, I mean, there are sort of Czech elements in there. So, for instance, Jerzy Sikora, who plays Jorik and who was in another of Jakubisko's films, I mean, is a Czech actor. And apparently there were some objections about him not speaking good enough Slovak. Uh, I think he's dubbed anyway in this film, but uh, clearly Jakubisko was happy to use a Czech actor. And I think the co-writer as well was Czech Interestingly, the co-writer later was to become the chief rabbi of Prague. So <laughs> you've got a, a rabbi involved in the writing of the film, which is interesting. There is that sort of engagement, I think, with Czech culture. And as you say, I think there is that, you know, idea of the melting pot of sort of mixing and fusing these different influences and different cultures together. And then, of course, the other um, national element in this is the French Element because this was I think this was a French co-production and um, it's one of the films that really resulted from the um, co-production agreement that was set up in uh, relation to uh, Rob Grier and Rob Grier's The Man Who Lies, which had been made I think the year before in uh, Slovakia. There is some kind of overlap with that film as well. I think the producer is the same, the cinematographer, and uh, apparently. Um, Jacobbisco I believe chose this figure of Stefanik Milan Stefanik who is this uh, who was this uh, Slovak statesman and was also a French general um, and I think Jacobbisco chose uh, Stefanik as a motif partly because that served as a kind of connecting point between France and Slovakia so yes I think that's very true that he's interested in merging different influences or different cultural um, tropes together and uh, In a way, I mean, uh, I've I've argued before, I think, in in what I've written about this, that I think there is a kind of postmodern element, even kind of before postmodernism was really a thing in that, you know, you do get these odd references to cultural phenomena from very different contexts. I mean, they reference Mao, for instance, and they reference uh, co- there's a Coca-Cola can that you see at one point, And some of these things just seem completely alien, really, to this context. So, yeah, I think that's definitely true that he's bringing in a lot of these other elements as well.
3: It's also like one of the main themes of these characters, though, isn't it? Because like one of them's a Jew, one, they, they, they like come from these different backgrounds and and shouldn't really be friends and they then form this sort of tight close relationship despite their differences so one of the main themes seems to be about overcoming those differences even though it kind of ends up badly for for all of them but
0: yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. That I think you can see that connection between the character's own ambitions and you know Yorick's statement that you know we we're, we're all the same basically in that scene where they're at the Stefanik, uh Memorial and they have the flag and uh, and you know Jakubisko's own feelings as a member of this younger generation. So I think again it relates to that idea that this generation has the possibility to be different and has the possibility to be more progressive and not to see these ethnic or cultural differences anymore.
1: The Slovak flag is through there so much, the red, the white, and the blue, uh, a little bit different than our red, white, and blue over here, or your red, white, and blue cat over in the UK, <laughs> but also uniting these three very different people that we do have. I'm trying to decipher what... York's, his fatherhood, his motherhood, I mean, he says that uh, Stefanik was his father. Obviously, that's more of a symbolic father. But then they also say that they're all orphans. Marta, the Jew, um, talks about how Poles killed her parents. And Andrzej, uh, the Pole, talks about how Jews killed his parents. But we, not, we don't necessarily find out what happened to York's parents. But all three of them are these orphans that are all living together. And in the in this just wild Dilapidated, crazy house that they live in, which is right next door to what looks like some sort of an asylum which is filled with kids with little people with uh people with Down syndrome, so it's just the they kind of are these orphans who are living next to the fools but they're playing the fools as well i mean of course york having his name york tapping on that whole uh fool character from hamlet i thought was a very nice touch and it seems like they're kind of running away from the world by playing the fool and i think that comes through even in that initial voiceover we get from someone who says they're yakubisco but who sounds very much like a child
0: Yes, I, I think that's um, part of his game playing. I think the way that it's set up like that, where you have yeah that statement, I, you're a yeah, Jacobisco, and then it's a child's voice, and then shifts to a woman's voice. I, I think that's uh, I think a way of setting up the kind of playfulness about identity and game playing throughout the film. What I like in that introduction too is that you know you see the kids, you see the people. I think uh, with Down syndrome possibly, and I think there is that sense of this embrace of um, otherness for want of a better word or this embrace of like marginalised people which I think for me I think ties in I think with a lot of what uh, other filmmakers were doing in the late 60s early 70s like Hodorovsky for instance but I think it also feels very heartfelt I think we're meant to Almost identify, I think, with these people. And I think it's a way of opening up this idea that, you know, we're going to look at things from different perspectives, we're going to see things, you know, not from the establishment perspective, or, you know, the dominant perspective, we're going to sort of take things from other points of view.
3: They are like children, though, aren't they, the central characters? They're like the children that live next door to them. And I love the fact that these kids just seem to wander in and out of their house along with that old guy, the sage. Uh, I think, like Mike said, it's it's total anarchy in that regard. But they're like children, even though they're sort of playing at fools. They can be very cruel, but there's like a naivety about them. And one thing I love about it is the way that it turns not to jump ahead, but in that, that last act in that they've, they've been forced to grow up. It's something that Yorick in particular sort of rejects and he rejects it violently but all the way through the film they're like these very carefree sort of childish characters who can do cruel and destructive things but so can kids so they're very much like kids even though they're fully grown adults and there's a lot of nudity and sex as well in the film but their ideas about life just seem very very childish and they're just all about play they just want to play and do silly things and it interests me how this is connected to the prague spring whether that's a comment on that as well like this freedom to explore and then all of a sudden it's it's gone or oh, i don't know if i'm just reading too too much
0: into it but yeah i, th- I think it's totally right to to connect it to the the sort of political context. I mean... This was made, I think, I think the story was drafted originally in 67, but I think they didn't start making it until October 68. So this is already a few months after the Soviet invasion. So I think it's very much made under the shadow of the death, of the death of the Prague Spring and of the end of those, I guess, il- illusions or those promises of a more liberal society that that brought. And so, yes, I think that's very much, that would have been very much, I think, on, on, his mind in making this. That's true about the context in, uh, I think, this embrace of playfulness and this embrace of uh, this ideal of freedom. I mean, I think it does relate, uh, I mean, in quite a literal way, I think, to the context. Uh, I believe that Prague, at least, and I think Czechoslovakia as a whole, I mean, I think it was quite into the hippie culture, which is uh, maybe surprising. I think it was, I think Prague was known as the hippie capital of Europe around this time. So I think he was definitely tapping into something that was sort of in the wider culture and um, there's a lot of uh, philosophy and a lot of, uh, a lot of the 60s culture I think is about that embrace of play, isn't it really? And about even if you look at somebody like R.D. Lang in Britain, I guess he was advocating a similar thing, this embrace of uh, what is conventionally known as madness. You know, that madness, the idea that madness can be something positive and can be something liberatory. I think perhaps what makes this film a little bit different and I think where the the, the context of the invasion does count is in the sense that here I think the characters are embracing madness or they're embracing play, but I think there's almost a kind of sense of despair kind of underpinning that because it's ultimately because they want to escape from the world. So I think this idea that you can transform the world through play or through this imaginative uh, liberation. I think that idea has kind of gone by this point. So really it's about the idea that the world around you is horrible. What you can do is you can escape from that. You can, as Yorick says, you can build this house in yourself. You can create a space within yourself where you can kind of ignore it and you can live freely within your own sort of little corner. But, yeah, I think it is very much of its time, I think, in this embrace of playfulness and, and, and childishness in, in a kind of a positive sense. In fact, I think the title of Tachkovia translates more accurately as birdies or little birds. So I think even that has a kind of childish connotation to it.
1: That also speaks to the whole idea that the freedom is really associated with these birds that live everywhere and they're all over the place. But for whatever reason, Marta hates them and is setting traps for them, which is interesting. So this whole idea of, you know, you can be as free as a bird, you can do all this play, but yet here we are trying to kill these birds and just do awful things with their eggs by playing pool with the eggs. (laughs) That was really bizarre.
3: When she drops that one into the pot, I mean, there's a lot of not very nice things done to animals in this and i don't know if any animals were harmed but there's also the hedgehogs as well that get candles that poor hedgehog i felt so bad for him i know and it's like but it's the sort of thing a child would do without actually realizing it was dangerous they're not malicious characters they're just like jonathan says it's a scent, it's like a sort of madness it 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 seems to have uh, certain parallels, but not total, with uh, Hitty Lovers' Daisies in that regard, where you have two female characters who would just, they don't take anything seriously, but they get more and more destructive in their games. Their games sort of get wilder and they start smashing things up and, you know, it's... And so it seems to have a sort of parallel to that in a way, but I see um parallels with fruit of paradise as well, this idea of the Garden of Eden and the loss of innocence and stuff as like you said, Mike, it's like that you could just sit here, I think, for days, <laughs> like looking into every single little strand, which I'm sure none is there by accident i'm I'm sure which is why it's just such a rich film because of all these
1: things I kept looking at the wardrobes and I kept thinking is this some sort of obtuse reference to Polanski with the two men in the wardrobe because there are wardrobes everywhere in this movie to the point where york is even sleeping in a wardrobe and comes out almost like it's a coffin but then you have these and i'm i don't know when c.s lewis wrote his stuff and i'm like is this supposed to be a transportation to another world or something so it, it just like the wardrobes become almost the walls to their little living area, which is actually kind of a big living area with these huge ceilings and everything, where the birds are flying around. I mean, just the setting of this movie is so wild, and that so much of it takes place in this one area. Yes, they do go out on the road at, at least once, if not twice, and there are scenes from outside, though the outside seems pretty dangerous, especially with these machine-gun-toting grannies that they have out there.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the wardrobes because I, I, th- that is something that I, I'm never able really to get a handle on uh, as to whether there is a precise meaning to that. I think, as as, as you said, I think that uh, I thought of Polanski as well. I thought of Two Men in a Wardrobe. And I think wardrobes do have a place, I think, in surrealism. I think Schwenkmeier uses wardrobes a few times and I think there is a kind of magical significance to the wardrobe in itself in that it is this place to hide in it's also I guess associated with dressing up and with play acting in that sense as you say it can function as a coffin as well I mean in terms of the the space I mean this is a really interesting space isn't it I think that they live in because I think on the one hand I mean it's kind of a ruined space it doesn't seem to be an inhabitable space in any kind of normal sense so I guess that can relate to this idea that we are living in this time of ruin and devastation and a lot of the other kind of spaces that we see are kind of ruined as well. There is this constant sense that the war somehow is going on still. He's kind of scrambling timelines a lot as well because you see like the Slovak partisan, you see the street battles outside, the appearance of Marta when we first hear see her is meant to evoke, you know, concentration camp inmates, which of course I mean if we see this film as set in 1969 or 68, it, it, that's kind of impossible, but I think it's meant to evoke this sense of this background of war and persecution. But on the other hand, I find that space that they live in quite fun. And I think it's also quite a playful and liberatory space in that it, I think it represents this state of pure uh, illogicality. It's almost a bit like a Magritte painting or something and, uh, we never seem to know how the characters kind of come in and out, really. I mean, we, I don't think we really see like an entrance or a doorway where we could say, "Well, this is, you know, this is the entry point." It's as though there's like entry points everywhere. Again, with the floors, we're not sure about how many floors are there in this building, and uh, you know, how do you go upstairs? I think they have like a fireman's pole at one point, don't they? But yeah, all, yeah, all to these get kind the of-
3: shirts out, which is seems like a weird invention. These like weird gadgets just to with another wardrobe actually (laughs) wardrobe I, I just wanted to say if you just take this as like purely as a fantasy film say sort of remove it from the Political climate, which is kind of impossible, but just for a second, one film it reminds me of, not thematically, but just the whimsy in it and the idea of this dangerous landscape is Louis Marle's Black Moon. Because in that, you've got a really strange house, like a fairy tale house in the middle of this very dystopian, war strewn culture and it becomes like a weird sanctuary for these bizarre things to happen so and i love that film as well so it kind of reminds me of that
0: uh without the weird breastfeeding i must admit i've never seen black moon but that makes me really keen to watch that now
3: Yeah, it kind of, it kind of takes place in this sort of dystopian war landscape where, and it's, and it's a a fairy tale, a very perverse one where this, um, this isn't a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it starts with this girl who's, who's a bit like Alice in Wonderland. She sort of comes out of this dangerous landscape and drops into this little cottage where she meets like a talking horse and this strange old woman in this weird pair of, Uh, twins one of them played by joe d'alessandro and it's really surreal you don't really get to work out who these people are or why they exist but just the contrast of having this weird sanctuary place to live where nothing really makes sense in the middle of you know when they go outside in birds orphans and fools it's the same thing there seems to be like war everywhere and it seems very dangerous and There's conflict. So it just, it reminds me of that just in that way, really. And also that they're both really whimsical films and really sort of surreal. I'd say this definitely has elements of the fairy tale, like Black Moon is.
1: A lot of times these characters feel like they walked right out of a French film, uh, especially I would say a Godard film, because, it, you know, even though they have a Jules and Jim relationship, it feels more like a, like a band of outsiders as far as the way that they come in. There is this political element to it. They are very anarchic, but they're, they're not necessarily spouting as much politics all the time as say, like a Godard protagonist.
0: Yeah, I think Godard was a really sort of conscious influence on on Jacobisco, I think, uh, especially at this point in his career. I mean, it's interesting because he's often described as the, as the Slovak Fellini, which I mean does make sense as well. And I've, I believe that Fellini and Jacobisco did become friends later on. But uh, I, I think Godard is definitely the yeah the core influence here. I think the the approach to editing and montage as well, like the use of stills from other sources like there's a still of dali that appears at one point the approach to editing is is for me quite godardian as well um
3: i love that he he got to know fellini because um you know obviously fellini as i talked about quite a few times probably my favorite filmmaker of all time and there are elements of fellini in this and the outsiders and that sense of grotesque carnival And the little pagan motifs, but I don't necessarily see this as... I've seen a few comparisons to Fellini, and yes, they're both visually very rich filmmakers who use colour in a very specific way, and use surrealism in a very specific way, and obviously have... An interest in, you know, the grotesque and the carnival and paganism. But beyond that, I don't really see them as having much in common. Like Fellini was never political. All his films were about himself. They were like a form of personal therapy. They're like, apart from his sort of criticisms of Italian culture, perhaps, and religion, I wouldn't say Fellini was particularly political in any way it was totally so it's a strange one that someone will just take a surface value of what something looks like and just say oh yeah it's bright it's colorful yes it's like Fellini when totally different I think thematically you know the the motivation like all of it totally 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 different in that way I mean, probably they they appeal to fans of Fellini, obviously, and it was one of the things that I first responded to was that really rich, you know, I love cinema that's totally visually over the top, very colourful, like I love technique, anything in Technicolor, like, you know, anything that just has crazy sort of set design. I'm a very, very visual person, and it's the first thing that I'll notice. So obviously, yes, that would have been my point of reference, but no, no, I, d- I don't... Th- see any other sort of uh, you know, connection to Fellini I think they were totally doing different things
0: with film Yes, I think it's perhaps more that, that I think that they were both shaped by that wider context because I think Fellini made Satiricon the same year as this which I think was his maybe apart from Juliet of the Spirits it was his first time to really go in this kind of, if you like, psychedelic or this kind of like over-rich visual direction so i think it's more that they had a a shared trajectory than that jacobisco was taking from fellini
3: to go back to your earlier point as well i think fellini even though he was a bit older he was channeling that sort of hippie sort of um sense of experimentation that you see from juliet onwards and you can totally see it in birds orphans and falls this this just sense of the 60s and that experimentation so yeah they do sort of parallel on that as well because Fellini was kind of very interested in that culture and very interested in what was going on starts to get really experimental uh, at the same period even though he was from a totally different generation yeah, there's definitely some parallels, but I agree with the Goddard thing in the characters. They're not really Fellini esque characters at all. They're something, something else.
0: This is underpinned by a political context and by a sense of time and place. So I think even though it does, it does sort of move into sort of this phantasmagorical area, it. it always maintains that awareness of this specific time and place. As much as that is stylized, I think it is also kind of a document of the period that it was made in. And uh, it's interesting because in Yakubisko's previous film, uh, Deserter and the Nomads, he actually included uh, footage of the invasion, of the Soviet invasion, which is interesting to kind of put this, you know, documentary element into a stylized, in some ways, fantastical film. So I think he always, he always maintained that connection with reality. And in fact, I mean, in terms of the politics, there is a, a comment that's often made about the final scene. And again, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, but uh, when Yorick commits suicide, one of the ways that he does that is by setting himself on fire and this was made two weeks after the death of um, Jan Palak, who was a, a Czech uh, student who protested against the invasion by setting himself on fire and, and then died from his wounds. And uh, I think Jacob Bisco has denied that he was influenced by this. But to me, it's too coincidental, I think. And uh, I think there were other actions where this happened too. I think there was the uh, event in Vietnam, wasn't there, in South Vietnam of the monks immolating themselves. So I think... Uh, I feel that that motif of of self-immolation is meant to, I think, conjure up political associations, whether it is Vietnam or whether it's closer to home.
1: His death is just so layered when it comes to the symbolism too, as far as hanging yourself by the statue of Stefanik. And not only are you setting yourself on fire, hanging yourself and drowning all (laughs) at the same time. It's like, okay. It's so, oh, I remember the first time I saw it, I was
3: just mouth agog like Jesus Christ, this is, um, but I've, I've sort of, after I'd seen it a few times, I started to read, you know, the fact that he kills Marta. Should we mention that? Is that okay?
1: Like I said earlier, I don't know if we're going to make more sense of this film. Hopefully we're not confusing the listeners too badly with this. Because, yeah, we are jumping all the way to the end here.
3: But the fact that he kills her, you know, because she's become a grown-up. Jay and Marta have got this family going in. There, so they've got these responsibilities and they're in a new house. It almost seems like he does it to free her. And when the first time I saw it, I read it as just purely as a sort of jealousy angle, you know, and it was all to do with his ego. But the more I think about it, it's almost like he's he's sort of setting them free from whatever, because I, I don't know, again, I might be reading too much into it, but I started to change my attitude to what the end in May because again not a malicious character um, even though he does cruel things which might seem like a bit of a paradox but uh, none of them seem to be malicious
0: yeah I think that's true really I mean I think there are a few ways of reading that that, but I think for me that's definitely the, the, the one that I would go with the most that Andre and Marta by this point have become more of a conventional couple and I think what helps to signify that is the house that they're living in at the end, which although it's still like a very bizarre looking space, it's more of a conventional domestic space isn't it and i mean it's actually i think in contrast to the former space which was all about like openness and all all about kind of you know permeable spaces this is actually a space that's very highly secured and sort of set off from the rest of the world you have these ladders to get into it and so i think that signifies the fact that they have embraced yes a more conventional more domestic lifestyle and um yeah, it's interesting that I mean, I think Yorick, by the f- sort of la- by the last act, is always seen in a suit, isn't he? So I think, again, that signifies that change of tone. And I think it's also about the fact that he himself has lost this former joie de vivre or this former passion that he had for foolishness. And I think you you could maybe suggest that in killing her, in committing these acts of violence, it's also a kind of projection, maybe, and it's also this rage against what he has become too. And I think Martha says to him, you know, you've lost your courage to be foolish and it's just this sense that the energy has gone, really, this 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 commitment to this, you know, this radical or this this foolish lifestyle in the best sense. It's it's kind of uh all dissipated at this point. I mean, I I kind of see this very much as a kind of end of the 60s film and it's kind of like an eccentric companion in a weird way to something like uh, Easy Rider or Alice's Restaurant in that I think people seem to take... including me, I think, take from it quite a kind of positive, optimistic and playful feeling. And yet, when you look at the endings of all these films, they're all really bleak and really about, uh, you know, suggesting that, you know, there was this possibility of some kind of, you know, lifestyle change. There was this possibility to live a different lifestyle. But at the end, it's, you know, we blew it. It's all, all those dreams have died out at the end.
2: You know, Billy, we blew it.
3: Well, 68, the difference between 68 and 69, there's a total shift, isn't there? If you look at it culturally, it's becoming a lot more violent and it's almost like an end of innocence as well. Not just in, in Czechoslovakia because of the Proud Spring, but sort of almost simultaneously, this is happening all over Europe and in America. You start to see a lot of violence in culture and we're just about to move into the seventies as well, which is like one of the most nihilistic periods for cinematic expression. And, and you can, and I totally agree. You can kind of feel it in this film. It's like the, it's like the end of something. It's like this is what we had, but it's over now. And kind of after killing Marta. Yorick obviously realises you know that the only place to go now is this horrible death which is awful Um, yeah uh, changing the subject though because I was just thinking he takes that photograph through the peephole which I find really sad um, of of his friend sort of calling to Marta but the use of cameras and photos in this is really really interesting
1: not even just actual cameras but then the way well one we've got the reflection of Yakubisco and the crew so we see them we see them in pictures but then when uh, there's one scene in particular where Andres is um, mocking like he has a camera and he's taking uh film of Marta, I believe. And it's just like, oh, this is really interesting that, that he is even aping that he's the cameraman, that he's got her in his gaze. I thought that was very fascinating. But yeah, every time they go out they have the camera. Uh, it seems like York mostly is taking photographs. He is taking pictures all the time, like he's documenting what has happened to the world at this point.
3: And there are other points where we see, like a camera crew as well, which is almost like almost breaking the fourth wall. It's like, are they part of this narrative? Are they there to make a documentary? Like, who are they?
0: I think you see the the children as well with a with a film camera as well don't you in one of the later sequences and there's that constant act of kind of like framing with the hand isn't there and then I think Marta goes one further by kind of doing the kind of film reel thing when she's holding the book there's that whole idea that she uh, espouses about uh, you know photographing with my eyes and it's like a way to absorb the ugliness of the world so I think you have an interesting comment there on the function of art maybe or the function of representation where we could say, well, film or art is a means to somehow reflect the horrors of the world and possibly to help to change that or to make things better. But I think because this does seem such a childish idea to, you know, to take in evil literally with your eyes, I think it's also possibly suggesting some doubt about that, about the function of art. And so, yes, I think you can see it as a very self-reflexive film in that way in sense that he's considering his own position as a filmmaker and where he's where his place is as an artist you know what effect can he have on sort of making the world better I guess again that relates to the Goddard influence and um, there's that whole sort of play as well with film the film frame itself isn't there where the frame will shrink and uh, (laughs) it's constantly playing games with you
1: that, and then also the tinting of the film. Of course, I'm reminded of somebody like, uh, Terry Yama and the way that he would use tinting a lot. It, it's funny because thinking back to last year when I was putting this year's program together of, of the entire year of films, I think you were both aware that we started off the entire year, the first three months, with films from 1969. And when I came to September, I made sure that I had a few 69 films in here. So looking at this one, looking at All My Good Countrymen, which is another kind of elegy to a age gone by that you can never get back to in the way that neighbors have turned against each other because of the communism, because of the, the invasion... That film was banned, this film was banned, but even more than that, Kat, I I was thinking about relationships when it comes to this movie, and it's almost like we have the flip-flop of the relationship from the seeds of man, the way that we had the two women and the one man, and now we have the two men and the one woman, and just all of those sexual politics that go on in there. And this weird thing too, and I'm sure that there is some sort of common phrase or something, but the way that when Andres gets uh, sexually aroused, I think he starts to have a nosebleed. And then later on in the film, when Andre and, and Martyr together, then York starts to get a nosebleed. I thought that was a nice little uh, callback there.
3: Yeah, it's amazing. The sexual stuff in it is mixed. It's not an, an overtly sexual film, but there is a lot of sex in it if that makes sense but sex is used in a really interesting way as is nudity in this trying to capture people nude and Marta will trick the boys into getting naked so it's not just her nudity it's like literally everybody's nudity which I really loved because it's like equal opportunities in that in that respect but the just the way sex is used as part of this um This sort of childish play thing that they've got going on is
0: really interesting. I really like the way as well he extends that idea of play acting and of of changing identities or playing with identity into the sense of gender fluidity, which I think is is virtually exceptional. I think in this period in Czechoslovakia, and uh, it seems like Yorick and um, Andre have a kind of romantic relationship in a way that they will kiss each other and.
3: at the beginning, in that bar, they sort of seem to be in a gay bar, don't they? And that guy's like all the beautiful boys, and he's like,
1: "Right, are you a boy or a girl? It really doesn't matter." And the way that Marta's hair is really short,
3: yeah, and Marta's really androgynous, and 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 one of the things that Yorick notes when he comes across her pregnant is that her hair's grown oh your hair's grown she's become more convent like she looks more like a conventional woman she's got the headscarf on and the long hair whereas when you one of the things that i really loved about it is when you first meet marta she's like this very androgynous she's still very sexual but she's very androgynous she's got this really short hair
1: she wears a uniform well he wakes up next to her and says you're a girl i must have drunk a lot
0: (laughs) yeah I love that. I love that, <laughs> which is great. It's yeah, that's just bizarre because I've I've come across really nothing else I think in in Czechoslovak cinema of this time that 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 is so sort of comfortable with that. I mean, it's the fact not only that he includes that uh, that I guess gay bar or gay party, but that he doesn't seem to make a judgment on it as a filmmaker. It's it's really just. Uh, it's just part of the, you know, the playfulness and the embrace of different identities, and he's he's fine with it. And it, yeah, that is a really unusual element, I think
1: talking about the camera stuff too there's that scene that happens right around that point after he wakes up with marta where it's uh york and andre and they're at a, some sort of a party or wedding or something and there are these two girls there and they are running naked through the forest and york says that they don't mind being new but they don't want to have their picture taken because i think it might be one of those like they don't they're their religion prevents them from having their picture taken, or something. I was like, okay, this is interesting.
0: Yes, that that kind of charging, sort of like forward-moving camera style. That's really, I think, uh, a distinctive technique of Yakubisko's films. It doesn't get quite as much uh, play, I think, in this film as in his previous one. But I think that's definitely something that he was into. That kind of uh, yeah, that kind of convulsive kind of moving camera. Um, it's almost a bit like Zhuavsky, I would say.
3: Something I wanted to bring up from the interview and in closely watch films, uh, and he talks about film as a collective art and you can definitely feel that energy that this is very much like not an altar standing at the top, but it's very much, it almost feels like this weird sort of, bohemian improv exercise with all these arty people getting together and stripping off you know and talking about art and politics it's like totally got that that vibe which is quite innocent um he talked about when he worked with Hitty Lover on the ceiling and uh, he says she makes a film as if she were buying a hat, a magnificent ceremony full of elegance and feminine cleverness and all the while she is suffering and in a little while the hat she bought doesn't appeal to her anymore and right there a style of storytelling emerges. And it's interesting how he saw story making or storytelling as this kind of organic process even for himself like not starting with a script really just ideas which to go back to what we were saying earlier possibly you know relates to him then bringing in all the 68 stuff because it's almost as if he was just sort of starting with a concept and then just sort of you know like Hitler, he was also very organic kind of going with the flow and seeing what he could bring into it which I I find another really interesting I think it's something that stands out in a lot of Czechoslovakian films of that period they weren't afraid to just experiment they would just kind of go in and you know with an idea and they would literally just kind of not totally make it up on the spot but you do get that sense of the creative energy uh, with with a lot of the checker soap but with this one especially it does feel like you can just feel that they were developing this as they went along and perhaps like in a contract and a parallel to the film playing themselves play acting and sort of doing the doing what the characters were doing
0: it's worth noting when you look at like production stills of the film that I mean Jacobisco and the cinematographer especially almost seem to be dressed the same way as the characters and so if you look at the production photos it's almost hard to see where the crew ends and the actors begin and um I think that what you said Kat I think very much matches what I've read and understood about the 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 process of making it I think that Yakubisko did say that basically the script that he had was really just a set of guidelines for what he made and uh, I think according to um Magda Pishariova who plays Marta she said that he uh was quite careful or was quite uh organized in terms of the the visual side so I think like the setups were very uh carefully planned out but in terms of like the acting and the dialogue uh he kind of would would basically allow them to kind of play out variations on on the scenes and then he would just give them kind of feed lines and things and so i think there was a lot of improvisation i think in terms of the dialogue and the acting
1: i like too that they are looking right at the new wave and the whole scene where they uh run across that big pile of film stock is wild and just covering themselves they look like there's some sort of creature shambling through just covered with film it took me a little while to figure out that it was film for whatever reason i thought it was ribbon at first until they started holding it up and i could see the images on it and then setting fire to it is just like see you later new wave you know we're into even something newer
0: now and again, yeah, that, that's really exceptional, isn't it? I think to make such a direct reference to the new wave. I can't think of any other film that actually mentions the new wave in that, uh, explicit way. And I guess it's also a, a kind of a crude pun because they're urinating, aren't they? So it's also the wave of urine. And, uh, and I guess also you could say, well, that's anticipating what was about to happen where, I mean, this is made in 69. Where there still is, uh, you know, there still is a large amount of freedom. Um, things had not really kind of turned yet, and uh, the sort of new system had not really established itself. But I think filmmakers were aware that soon, you know, things are going to start to be banned, and so I think it's almost looking ahead to the destruction of that whole kind of cinema. And uh, I, I love that sequence on the ice as well. I think that's a really fun sequence where they. Uh, they kind of act out the different sort of movie studio logos don't they 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 do MGM I think it's MGM rank Moss Film and Columbia I think those are the four that they uh, (laughs) imitate and I'm not sure what that's saying whether that's about attacking or making fun of the kind of dominant institutions of cinema or whether it's just part of this playful kind of homage to to movies
3: The part when they're, um, playing the piano and stuff has got this real sort of classic Hollywood slapstick vibe to it as well, which is, and and the music that goes along with it, that wonderful music. Well, the score on this is just incredible anyway, but they've got that sort of real sort of slapstick sort of thing and they're acting like these clowns. And it just, it seems like he does bring in these other little hat tips to other parts of cinema that, um, you know, you don't necessarily see in many Czech New Wave films. So it's another thing that stood out to me, the idea of the climb, but in a cinematic way, it is does have a specific convention that comes out of Hollywood.
0: One of the films that this is very close to is um, another Slovak film from the same year called um, Party in the Botanical Garden, which I think really does await real discovery and that's a marvellous film almost like a companion piece to this one i think and and also actually stars Yoshi sakura in the main role so it's very closely connected to that what you were saying kat about the kind of homages to like silent cinema it reminds me of the fact that at the beginning of party in the botanical garden you have a recreation of the uh, the lumiere brothers film about the train so i think that must have been something that was in the air in in Slovakia at the time, this kind of interest in in silent or early cinema.
3: I feel really terrible, actually, (laughs) because a confession to me. But I remember when you... you, recommended me this film the botanical garden was the other one you said I should check out so I got both of them and I watched this one and the other one got stashed away on a hard drive which ironically I found by accident about a week ago and thought oh Christ I haven't watched this yet I should watch it before the episode and I didn't get time but I'm definitely going to fit that one in because I've seen stills from it and it just looks as wonderful and outrageous as, is this one. And just seeing the pictures, I'm like, oh God, I, I do need to see that. So I'm going to schedule that in
0: very soon. It's gorgeous, and it's almost like kind of a nice uh, antidote to the ending of this film. In that, that it is a much more kind of positive, uplifting experience. And uh, I think what's telling for me in terms of the kind of motif of flight is that uh, Party in the Botanical Garden also also is very interested in in flying as a, a metaphor. I think the difference is that here in Birds, Orphans and Fools, characters don't really manage to get off the ground or what actually happens is that they tend to fall or plummet, whereas in Party in the Botanical Garden, at the end of that, the characters do actually fly. So I think that, to me, tells us a lot about the differences, I think, between these two films. And I think this film is all about the failure of flight in a way, which, again, I guess, relates to the figure of Stefanik, who, of course, died in a plane crash. So I think that's... uh, Says something about this, you know, the the idea that flight or, you know, this this sense of uplift is a, uh, it, it, it's it's a, an ambition, it's an ideal to be able to fly, to be able to escape, but it doesn't tend to succeed. Well,
1: you know, Makave would tell you, man, it's not a bird. I want to talk about that. Bizarre scene when York gets arrested. I mean, what is going on there? This is just wild. Is that the is he taking a bullet for the other two? Are they doing something wrong, or is it just this fear of cops?
0: All that's happened to them is that they've run out of petrol, isn't it? And the car is stopped. You do see that weird. I think it's like is it like a grenade launcher or some kind of weapon that Marty is holding, which just sort of comes out of nowhere. But I think that's after the car after the police have already come out. So it's not really clear what they've done to attract the attention of the police. Maybe just the fact they're dressed a bit weirdly, that they're in this, I think what looks like a Cadillac to me, or like some big American car. Probably it could just be that they kind of look a bit freaky in Slovakia in 1969. But yeah, it is strange that he just immediately assumes they're going to get into trouble and he's going to take the blame for it.
3: To go back to what Mike said about the Cedar Man, though it kind of reminds me of that in that way, because the police in that or you know will just stop and then all of a sudden take over your life and question you, and you know it has a similar sort of anti establishment sort of vibe in that way, although Italy culturally was very different um, than Slovakia. But this, like like you said, like a fear of the police or authority that, you know, that sort of almost paranoia that it's not good to be stopped, (laughs) like even if you're not doing anything. I think Seed of Man definitely has that same vibe and it tends to pop up in a lot. I think around 68, 69, even in America and Britain, there was becoming like a, a growing sort of suspicion or unease about authorities and law enforcement and and stuff. And of course, we've seen a lot of protests as
0: well, which kind of parallels to what we're experiencing now. It's just that sense of kind of omnipresent threat, isn't it? And and violence and persecution that sort of surrounds the characters all the time. So I guess it's natural that the police would just be another element of that and... uh, one of the other kind of weird omnipresent presences in the film is the uh, the nuns, which I think is really weird. You know, you have these nuns who are usually, I think, male actors, aren't they, in nun costumes. And uh, even in the, the climactic scene of the murder, there is a nun outside shooting. A, I think, Mike, you said it's the, like a flare gun.
3: Yeah, they're like vigilante nuns. Like, what is this place? Marauding nuns.
0: Yeah, and the way that it's
1: cross-cut is very purposeful.
0: I mean, the film that Jacob Biscoe made after this one, um, which is called See You in Hell, My Friends, is all about this group of characters who... Actually, they do a similar thing to the characters in this film in that they try to escape uh, from the world and live this kind of very bohemian life, but they keep being kind of pursued and basically harassed by this pair of... I think they're referred to as like red nuns who are kind of always trying to get them to come and board this red arc. So I think the political symbolism in, in that later film, is not very subtle, but I think nuns in, in that film are clearly like a very tyrannical presence with this implicit kind of allegory about communism. So maybe there's a similar intention here, I think.
3: But they're like watchers, aren't they? The nuns. They're, they're always there watching
1: we talked a little bit about the landlord slash fool slash old man character. There's another character in this movie that we haven't mentioned, which is this redheaded woman that is in York's life that he seems to escape to every once in a while. And when he sees her at one point, uh, he's putting apples all around her naked body. And I was struggling trying to figure out if that was a, a memory or if that was happening currently. And then there's a moment when, She takes him in and introduces him to her two children. And that seems to kind of sour the relationship, kind of like Marta being pregnant. But I was just like, this is an interesting thing that he's got this, I guess, like woman on the side kind of thing, because they seem like they're romantically involved.
3: Yeah, she is really interesting because she's like a more mature character, like she's a mother. And it goes back to what I was saying about the more pagan elements. There's certain scenes with that woman that look like they could have come out of the Wicker Man, especially all this symbolism with apples and naked bodies and babies and, you know, just all that kind of fertility stuff. And I think Yakubisko sort of said that the film was partly a sort of statement against commitment. And Yorick certainly has commitment issues if you could call that he will he will try and sort of escape. But at the same time he keeps getting drawn back as well to these women. And so it's interesting what it says about him as a character. And when you look at them in the relationship you you sort of look at it in a more traditional way. But then when you start to think about it, you it's not actually that. Like you said, Jules and Jim, there is certain aspects of that, but then it's not that either. (laughs) It's like everything has a kind of double and triple meaning. So, um, yeah, it's like, he's interested in this woman, but he can't handle the kids. Like what, but you know, you don't see a hassle in him or anything. So it's, it's, it's strange, you know, this idea, I guess that he always wants to be a child and, you know having babies means you then have to be the parent
0: that's another ambiguity isn't it?
1: he's putting the apples around the redhead, and then I found it interesting. you mentioned fruits of paradise and this whole thing and and I found it interesting that when he stabs Marta at one point and I don't think we necessarily see the stabbing we see the blood on the stick that he's holding, and then he takes a bite of an apple again before he covers himself up with a sheet and proceeds to stab her even more so That's just like, okay, yeah, two apples within 20 minutes. This is very interesting. Okay, And then eats
3: a huge plate of spaghetti.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I have no idea about that. (laughs) Maybe he's a pastafarian.
3: Interestingly as well, when he stabs her, it's like a vampire's steak. It's not even with a knife. It's It's like the sort of thing you would see in a Hammer film from this period. It's like this horrible wooden state which you would imagine would be really painful
1: as well he's not just killing her he's killing the unborn child too which makes it maybe even a little manson family-esque
0: absolutely yeah i i always that always goes through my mind and of course it's the same year isn't it as well which is kind of uncanny i
3: didn't want to kind of was it before or after though i didn't want to bring that up in case i was like reaching <laughs> but um, it was something that occurred to me was straight
1: away it's like you know the the Manson I think it was after because the Manson the the Tate LaBianca murders I think were July 69
3: It's still it's harrowing the fact that you know and he gets this you know not just a knife but something that will actually impale right through her and the child which is just is just horrific but It also feels really sad for both of them, which is something that you don't like. Generally, when you get violence in a film like that, a sort of spurned lover who's jealous and he'll be a bit of a psychopath, you kind of hate the guy and you feel really sorry for the woman. But in this, you feel sorry for all of them. Like even Yorick, you just feel sorry for, for every single one of them, which is really exceptional and really
1: difficult
3: to do. So I wouldn't say Yorick was necessarily a sympathetic character, but there's something endearing about him all the same.
1: No, I like all three of these people. If there's one person I didn't like that much, it was Andre, just because he's kind of a, I don't know, milk toast.
0: The fact that he, he kills the unborn child as well, I think, uh, suggests it's like the murder of the future, isn't it? Or, the, or this is recognition of the death of future ideals. Oh, totally, totally, because t- t-
3: just the theme of of children throughout the whole thing. And you've got this overabundance of children and fertility, you know, the with the apples and the other, the redhead lady. I don't know the actress that played her, but the fact that she's obviously very fertile is wow. Well, and just this idea of fertility, this very pagan sort of sense of fertility. And it all ends in that room. And then it's interesting. The spaghetti eats is just very bland. It's like this plate of just very bland spaghetti. And it just seems very symbolic. As to to what that means, because before it's this uh, overabundance of children and bright coloured fruits and fresh fish, and then he sits down and he just eats this uh, very bland meal. the The food in film really fascinates me, but in particular, food in Czech film, because I know Esther Krembakova uses food in a lot of her scripts or things that she collaborated on, like foods used in a very specific way in daisies it's used in fruit of paradise obviously and you've got oranges in that and apples in that which you then see in birds orphans and falls Um, and it seems to reoccur across anything with kermbakava and i just find it really in particular fascinating how they use it in the new wave because it seems to be a thing that crops up time and time again eating food Meals, like the ritual of eating, the fruit appears here, there and
0: everywhere. Yeah, Schwankma uses food a lot as well and uh... Yeah, I guess there's so many things you can do with it, aren't there? Because I guess it can relate to ideas about ceremonies, and so you can give that a political dimension, and you can talk about, you know, moral or, you know, uh, social codes of behaviour. Food has a kind of physicality to it, so I think you can connect it to the body, to the interesting sexuality, and it's kind of like endlessly, it's an endlessly malleable and interesting motif, isn't it? None of the food, I think, in Czech film looks particularly appetising.
3: It doesn't, but it's in its always- it's like kind of grotesque but but still fascinating i mean even something like the report on the party and the guests which is all about you know uses uh the con- conventions of a dinner party to make a sort of political allegory of where you sit and don't sit and who sits at mm. what table and how you eat and how you dress and yeah it just seems to be a thing that I've noticed, and because I love food in films anyway, but I just notice it. it seems very dominant in the Chat
0: wave. I think a big part of surrealism as well. I think Bunuel is quite interested in dinner tables as well, isn't he? And I, I'm thinking as well about that image of Dali that we see, where I think we see Dali with a woman uh, kind of like spread out on a table, and I, I feel like the scene with the with the redheaded woman with the apples is almost like a, a, an attempt to kind of imitate that image. And the two images run together in my head, actually. So I I always tend to forget where they occur. So when we do see the scene of the red-headed woman on the table, I always, like you said, Mike, I tend to forget whether that is something we've already seen or whether that's a flashback to an earlier sequence. But I think that is the first time we see it at the end. But it does seem like something we've seen before. But I think it it maybe is because of that image of Dali that crops up earlier. I
1: think... That the woman that played Marta was also Marketta Lazarova. Yeah.
3: Yeah, she's Marketta. I think we talked about this when we did that Marketta Lazarova episode, it seems like five hundred years ago now. She is one didn't she become like a politician in, in the end, yeah. She is wonderful. I'm not gonna attempt to pronounce her name because it's terrifying. It's got the little <laughs> <laughs> but she she talking of paganism marquette allows a river as well there's another another film that's got really interesting themes about pagans and sexuality and and being wild and of course there it's all t- tied to animals but uh yeah she she's just fantastic
0: and, and I think like we've said in terms of the, you know, the sort of scrambling of timeframes, I mean, there, there is a sense in which this does seem to be taking place at like an earlier, in an earlier time period. I think there's a lot of like visual motifs that recall like Bosch or, um, I think one of the reference points is the book Ship of Fools, I think with the juror uh, illustrations with the fool's hats and so I think he's always playing with that sense of time period so this does seem to in some ways to belong to an earlier time period and uh, he does that in a few of his films really I think where you know you feel that you know you could be watching like a medieval village or a a village in the 19th century and then suddenly you'll see like a car or you'll see a a helicopter and you think hang on this is actually modern times and he's just using these kind of like older sort of visual references
1: I love movies like that where they are just so completely out of time and and, and yeah, the, those things will throw you. It's like when suddenly there's a VCR in Edward Scissorhands, and you're like, wait a second.
3: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's great though because it's even in the costumes. You're like, where where are these? Where are these people from? Um, I know oh, a lot yeah. of people the don't. skin
1: vest that mm. he wears, and then
0: like
3: that,
1: yeah, like a Soviet uh, uniform that he has, and, and, yeah.
0: And those fleeces, I mean, they could either be hippie gear or they could be something from, like, Slovak, uh, you know, rural rural costumes. So, I, again, it's that merging together where you don't know where the, you know, where does the Hey ashbury kind of Carnaby Street look start and where does the sort of the Slovak folk outfit end, you know, it's kind of always playing with them.
3: I read somewhere his films sort are of described as sort of, like, magical realism. Now, I haven't seen a lot of his films. I think just because I found them really difficult to get hold of and it's something I really want to find more of his films because he's interesting but the one I have seen and I know not a lot of people like it is the Bathory one which I wrote about for my Daughters of Darkness book and and that is like it presents itself as like a historical epic that is sort of goes more for the factual side of Bathory and the politics and all this but there are scenes in that film that seemed to just slip into this weird fantasy, this sort of magical world that's a total conflict with this. I'm going to tell the true historical story of Countess Bathory. And this isn't a horror film. And it's, it's wonderful when it crops up. I know it really annoyed sort of the historical people. Um, and I think at one point he adds Bathory having an affair with Cravacchio. Which is like I don't think happened, but it's like, yeah, just this idea that Ed, that his films, from the little bit that I've seen, and I've seen Deserters and the Nomads, they they seem to take place in this magical realist universe where anything is possible. People can just turn up; they they sort of belong to anywhere and everywhere. And I really love that. I think Birds, Orphans, and Fools is such a magical film in that respect. Because it is like this total universe, like where is this place, who are these people, where have they come from, they're all dressed like they've been through a thrift shop, just picking up random items from all different eras and it's like you can't really place them anywhere, but then you have these very specific real references to the real world. So it's like he's saying, you know, this, this magical world it exists inside our world, which is, is I think one of the powerful things, like to go back to what you said, Jonathan, about building the house with inside you. It's, it's almost like it's, you know, you can build this magical world inside our world. Yeah. It's a lovely thing about the film.
0: I love films that have kind of worlds within worlds. And I think this almost goes one further because you, like the house itself is like a world within a world. And then later on after Yorick has come back from prison, they have built like another little house within the house. So it's like a yeah. world within a world within a world. And it's this sense of kind of like spaces within spaces. And uh, yes, I love anything like that as well. Um, again, I think part of the kind of contradictoriness and the sort of illogic of the uh, use of space and you have that garden as well, don't you, in the tree inside the house as well. To me, it almost relates to what he says at the beginning or what the what the narrator says about, you know, life being sad, but not completely sad. And it's always about this embrace of contradiction where, you know, you can say one thing is true, but then you can turn around and say, actually, no, it's not. The opposite is true. And I think there's a lot of references in the film to things becoming the opposite. And to me, I think the way he uses space is kind of a way to visualize that idea that, you know, we can have contradictions, we, know we can have this space that is inside, but it's also outside. And so to me, I think that's almost like a, the space is almost like a metaphor for his approach to narrative or his approach to representation, where, you know, you can hold two contradictory statements together sequence i really like as well is the, is the scene in the uh, the countryside where they go to the countryside and um to me i think that's interesting because that was i think like a, a cliche really of a lot of socialist realist communist style filmmaking where characters would go to the country and they would meet with the, you know the ordinary people like the shepherds or the laborers in farms and that would kind of like regenerate them that would give them this kind of new outlook and it's almost like the characters kind of play out their own version of that
1: I think they go outside a few times. One is when they're chasing those women through the forest. There's the, when he gets arrested and then there's one in between those where they go to that uh, monument and I had to look it up that it's the, the monument to the Slovak national uprising of 1944, which I found, you know, super again loaded with symbolism to, what are we doing at this particular place with the Slovak flag and talking about how we're all orphans seemed like luckily not being a uh, Slovakian, I wasn't getting hit over the head with what's the real meaning, but I definitely was picking up like, there's a lot of stuff going on in this scene.
0: Yes. I mean, I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the references to Stefanik as well are quite interesting uh, in, I think the kind of mix of, I thought like the mix of feelings that they represent. I mean, I, I don't think that Jakobisko was kind of mocking Stefanik or mocking the kind of national mythology. There's that line that Yorick says where he says, you know, people need heroes. So I think there is the idea that Stefanik did represent some promise that was not fulfilled. There are lots of conspiracy theories about Stefanik's death. I mean, Stefanik was basically one of the... Um, architects one of the founding figures of uh, the Czechoslovak state in 1918 with uh, Masaryk and Beneš who were both Czech and so there are conspiracy theories that Masaryk was uh, sorry that Stefanik was killed by uh, Czech ministers because he was holding out this uh, hope of a kind of a more independent more independent Slovakia so i think you know you can relate Stefanik's death to this sense of, you know, unfulfilled promises of independence for the nation. So I think you could say Yakubisko, I mean, I think he's sympathetic to that extent in that it represents, you know, uh, failed promises. But I think at the same time, there is also some, you know, I think gentle mockery of national mythologies and of the way people cling to these, you know, past heroes. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, you also see that Slovak partisan fighter who is still fighting the war. And I think it's like this. (laughs)
1: Yeah, where he's like, what, the war's over? Yes, friend, it's been over for 20 years. He's just like, ah, whatever. And he goes on with
0: his machine gun. And they're usually old people, aren't they? The people fighting. So it's the sense that they've not moved on, I think. One other film I think that is quite closely connected is The Man Who Lies, because I was just thinking that that's all about the Slovak national uprising as well. And uh, that's also kind of like a weird spin on it, just as this is.
3: And also very surreal as well and plays with time and narrative and, yeah. I didn't know that was a Slovakian film until you pointed it out, Jonathan, ages ago. But I really love that film. Yeah, it has that, that when Knowing that then and then going back to it and knowing it, from the little that I know about Slo- Slovakian films, you can see that use of the, the woodlands and stuff. And it's like definitely got that vibe.
0: Because I think that um, Igor Luter, who was the, the cinematographer on on this, was a cinematographer on both the Rob Grier uh, Slovak films, and apparently, I think Rob Grier basically gave him a lot of freedom. And I think by the time that they made um, Eden and Eden and After, I think that basically Luter was choosing a, like a, he was actually kind of creating a lot of the setups, and I think just Rob Grier just let him play with the camera. So I think that I guess a lot of the visual style—not not to kind of you know denigrate Rob Greer at all, because I think he ha- he has great visual sense himself—but I think there's something about the camera work in both those films that I think is reminiscent of this film as well. I mean, there's a lot of game playing in both of those films as well, isn't there? Really, in, uh, in *Man Who Lies*, there is a sort of blind man's buff game as well, isn't there, which is also kind of a little bit creepy and.
3: Yeah, and this idea of playing with time and narrative, because in that, at the very beginning of the film, it sort of places it in this specific historical period. But then you have the main protagonist, um, played by Jean-Louis Trontignon, is he Boris or something his name is? And he's wearing, like, 60s clothes, but he's supposed to be in there. So it does... Uh, similar thing in birds orphans and fools where you can't really quite place people or they say they're from somewhere but what they're wearing sort of indicates that's
0: not entirely true he goes by the different names doesn't he sometimes
3: yeah he's got got different names and then he tells people different stories who you don't know whether you're seeing a flashback or a lie or a yeah so much playing around in
1: in that film All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show.
0: How to continue a television series after a mage actor has left the cast.
1: Part 3. The Doctor Who Method. Give the character the ability to completely alter his appearance, and thus be played by any available actor. This also lets the character evolve into suitable form for any given audience. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www dot
0: Hi there, faithful Projection
1: Booth listener, Chris Stashu here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts, podcatchers both android
0: and ios
1: this is adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called proudly resent at proudly and you are listening to my favorite the number one the projection booth mike put so much work into it if you listen to my show i put no work into it enjoy the rest of the show you lucky son of a gun oh. That's right we'll be back next week with our final film of September 2020 vera hetovala's fruit of paradise until then i want to thank this week's co-hosts cat and jonathan so jonathan what is the latest with you sir
0: i've um got a an essay that should be coming out soon in a book about the Barandov studio so i think that's it's about your i heard as well so i think uh, yeah, oh my even, God. More, <laughs> even more exciting and uh Yeah, it's going to be Uri Hertz's relationship with Barandov Studios. And uh, so, yeah, hopefully that will be coming out later this year from Amsterdam University Press. And I think it's going to be called uh, Barandov, Hollywood of Eastern Europe.
3: Oh, wow. 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 (laughs) You're going to need
0: this book. And then I've also got a piece coming out soon for um, Film of Ipsetled, which is the... uh, check national film archives website, uh, and it's the English version of the website. And that's going to be about the, uh, reception of the fifth horseman is fear in America. And it's about the, the American, <laughs> or ra- ra- <laughs> rather the Italian American, uh, edit of that film so I think it's going to clear up some of the confusion that's often existed about the, the various cuts of that so uh,
3: oh,
2: wonder- thank you so much wonderful. for the ad- 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 I,
0: wish, I wish every uh, announcement was greeted with that
3: to I think this is just absolutely wonderful especially the fifth oh, yeah. horseman because we got so confused oh, over yeah. the that cuts when we did scene? that episode yeah. Yeah. and like we Mike did a bit of his detective work but it was all like i can't wait to read
0: those the answer is it's all it's all carlo panty's fault basically
3: oh wow <laughs> that makes sense
0: and cat what's happening in your world
3: oh my god i actually know what i've done this time <laughs> so we're not recording like six months in advance um so just did a video essay on the graveyards of honor set which mike was also on so that was nice we did sort of Parallel essays. And so I just literally got my box like two days ago and I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but I have seen Mike's essay and it's wonderful and Black Rainbow as well. So they're both from Arrow. I did a, a commentary with Sam, but my big, oh, my doors of darkness book is finally out after all this yeah, time waiting. Yeah. <laughs> you can actually buy it now. Cause yeah, it was getting a bit kind of. <laughs> Yeah, what happened was we the my original publisher sort of merged with another publisher and sort of my book was the next on the stage, so it got stuck in the merger. But we're through the other side now and it's been liberated. And then COVID, then of course the, the week it's subdued to be going to print, the the like the pandemic starts. So I think it was sat in a warehouse for a while as well. As we were in lockdown. But it is actually it's been unleashed, which is wonderful. And I have a Patreon now, which I'm going to pimp on every Projection Booth episode. Cat <laughs> Ellinger's Confessions of a Cine Slut. So, like, essays, blogs, vlog. I've started vlogging, like, a TikTok um, and commentary, trailer commentaries and all sorts of stuff on there. So, um yeah, just
0: check it out on Patreon. I think you've got the, uh, the Libertine. Isn't that, isn't that coming out soon as well? I'm oh, really God, excited yeah, the Libertine. The, sorry, yeah.
3: <laughs> which, I, um, yeah, I'm, I think that one's coming out October, um, which is amazing because that's like Nucleus. You've recommended that.
0: I'm so excited about that. Oh,
3: it's such a beautiful film. It's like an Italian sex comedy, but it's very, very perverse. It's got John Lewis in as well and Catherine Spack. And it looks beautiful and I've been wanting some, just wishing someone would restore it for so long. But it's one of those weird titles that sort of, you know, doesn't get all the spotlight from that period. And then uh, Mark Morris, who at uh, Nucleus Films, who absolutely loves the film too, has spent so long restoring this thing and it looks beautiful so I'm so so excited I think I I think the pre-orders are up actually Uh, don't quote me on that but I think you might be able to pre-order it but yeah loads of love for Nucleus because I know there's so much has gone into getting that release just right you know it's been in the pipeline for a while now
0: I'm really yeah really keen to see that I'm so glad that I waited and and I I think I think there was like a, 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 a sort of poor quality version available on YouTube at one point which I didn't didn't want to see so i'm so glad that it yeah wait I'm, i yeah there
3: out. was a there was like a previous dvd and um the new print is just totally reveals details that you just, just couldn't see them on the dvd because it was kind of meddy and it wasn't so yeah seeing that restored i was just like whoa and they've got like three different debs and Two different versions. They've got like the Euro cut and then the, the American cut because Rodney Metzger picked it up. Yeah, they've really, Mark's just totally invested so much in this. Brilliant.
1: Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to our website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps a projection booth take over the world.